This episode of Walter Edgar's Journal is an encore of a previously broadcast program. Welcome to Walter Edgar's Journal. With me in the studio today is Brian Hicks, who's a columnist for The Post and Courier in Charleston. He's also an author of a number of books about South Carolina, and his most recent is entitled In Darkest South Carolina. The subtitle is Jay Wade is Wearing and the Secret Plan that Sparked a Civil Rights Movement. Brian, welcome back to the journal. Thanks for having me, Walter. You've been on the journal before, but let's just refresh our listeners with who you are, where you came from, and how did you get to the Post and Courier? Well, I'm uh, from East Tennessee around Chattanooga and was a political and statehouse reporter in Nashville and Chattanooga before I came to the Post and Courier 21 years ago. Wow, okay. You've done things other than just a columnist. You did basic reporting and yeah I, I came down here in in the 90s and um, took a job as a general assignment reporter basically writing on news of the day features of the day and when I got hired they asked me what do you want to do and I said anything but politics and they said Brian we promise you you'll never have to cover politics one month later I was on Fritz Holland's re-election campaign bus <laughs> And since I do read the Post and Courier online, uh, some of your columns today deal with politics or or politicians. Yeah, I sort of have fallen into that. That's basically all I do now. Well, in South Carolina, how could you not talk about politics? It's it's, – they keep giving me material. (laughs) When I started writing the column, they – People ask me, how are you going to come up with three subjects a week? And now it's, how do you narrow it down to three subjects a week? Well, I don't think folks realize how challenging it is to sit down and write uh, a column because you're limited. How many words are normally in your column? 700 words. It's a lot easier to write 3,000 words on a topic than it is to write 700 words. Yes, it is. A lot of people don't realize that brevity is uh, is harder than being verbose. <laughs> well, why did you decide to write this book? Well, I heard the story of the judge probably, I don't know, more than 15 years ago and originally thought that I wanted to write it and, and pitched it to a couple of publishers in New York in 2006. As as those things go, as you well know, they, we get into discussions and one thing leads to another and next thing you know, I'm writing another book. And I'd always sort of had the judge in the back of my mind. I found a, a portrait of him in the Post and Courier library. It was just, uh, you know, it was in the file with the AP photos for when you needed a photo of him. And um, I took this studio portrait of the judge and, and put it in my office. And so for years, I've had the judge sort of staring down on me and uh, with this kind of stern look on his face. And so I never forgot him. And um, other books have intervened, but I've always meant to get back to the judge and, and finally did it and, and think the timing is right. And the folks at the Post and Courier have been very supportive of your extracurricular activities, your, your writing books. Yes, they have been. They've, they've been very supportive of that. Uh, I, th- I think that, you know, it, it does us both well and um, keeps me out of the office and out of everybody's hair uh, for a while. But they were particularly interested in this story and uh, wanted to publish it. Uh, we'll, we'll get into that in, in a minute in, in some detail. But... That is interesting, given the relationship between Judge Wade Waring and what was then the two newspapers in Charleston, the Evening Post and the News and Courier. By the time the judge left South Carolina, they were anything but amicable. Of course, this was complicated by the fact that one of his relatives was the editor of the News and Courier. That's right. It's his nephew, Tom, yeah. who took a very different view of civil rights issues than the judge did. Okay. All right, let's let's kind of start at the beginning because I really like the way you set the stage. You don't just start when he became a judge. You go back and pick up the young man, the young waiter swearing before he even finishes his, his college degree and the Charleston of that era. That's, I think, important to realize that waiter swearing was a product of his times. And then he did what he did makes it even more remarkable. Yes, I thought that context, um, one, you don't see a lot of history of Charleston. It sort of goes Fort Sumter, Joe Riley, and there's this big gap in between where you don't hear a lot of them. I mean, you would know it, but the average person on the street wouldn't. And um, I thought that that context was important, uh, both because it's an amazing story and to show you 
what he came from and what he had to sort of overcome. Part of that is his family name in Charleston. That certainly in that era was very, very important. I don't think it's diminished, that's diminished too much, but it, cer- it certainly was important. He was a wearing, but the Civil War had not been kind to his family. No, the Warings, the Warings had been there since 1683, the year Charleston was incorporated, and uh, they had always been, maybe not the richest people in town, but always very prominent, and uh, public servants and bankers and lawyers and what have you, and um, the war left the family pretty destitute, as it did many families, so as young Waring was growing up, his family was not in great shape. They... Um, they got by. His father got a job with the South Carolina Railway and made a little bit of money, and they were they were up and down, but they certainly were not uh, rich. He was the youngest child, right? He was the youngest of four children. Actually had it a little bit better than his brothers and sisters, who were all born pretty much during Reconstruction. And Waitus came along in 1880, and by then the family could afford to send him to a private school, and uh, he had a nanny. And... Uh, you know, despite all the horrible things that were going on, disease was rampant, and you know, the, you got the earthquakes and the hurricanes. He had a he had a pretty you know stable childhood. Well, people don't realize that Charleston, at the turn of the last century, is one of the most unhealthy cities in the United States. Cholera, malaria, everything was everything was rampant. It was not helped by the fact that there was no sewer system. It's a pretty grim picture. Yeah, I thought that it was a stark contrast, certainly, from Charleston today. But um, I saw a news story from back then when I was researching this that Charleston was listed as one of the 10 most dangerous cities in the world just because of health concerns. Well, and it was not unusual in the Charleston of that day for people to have a cow in the backyard or nearby and people drank unpasteurized milk. TB was a very real problem along with everything else. Yeah. There wasn't any local economy. The docks, Charleston as a port, was a joke. Yeah, the entire economy of the city had had fallen apart. Um, The the port had lost uh, some huge percentage of its business, and there just wasn't really anything going on. It had never recovered from the war. Well, in the early years of the 20th century, there was a Charleston merchant who wanted to make things, try to make things better to give it a, a boost. And that's kind of where you pick up the story. Yeah, they had um, the South Carolina and West Indian Interstate Exposition, which was World's Fair, basically. And this was a um, pretty common ploy for cities around the country in that era. They would have these big expos that last for six months, and they'd try to tur- bring in tourists and and raise all sorts of money. And um, I've always wanted to tell the story of the expo, and I thought this was a great place to sort of introduce Charleston to you, its latest scheme to get back on track. And uh, there were just so many things going on there, not the least of which were the politics that uh, Ben Tillman was playing with Charleston over the exposition. They talked about the ivory palaces, uh, the buildings that were built pretty much out where the Citadel is now. It was in that that part of town. But let's talk a little bit about the ivory palaces, because I think we're not going to get away from Judge Waring because that's a part of his world. Well, they, they built this um, this beautiful they – call, they called it the Ivory City. That's what the newspapers dubbed it, which um, was interesting because in 1895 they called it the White City in Chicago when they had their World's Fair. And um, they built these grand uh, cotton palaces and, and, and these great shrines to um, all the various industry of the state. And they're all made out of plywood and just painted over and were thrown up in six months. But – if you look at the photos, you know, from a distance, it's this gorgeous, ornate city that you can't imagine why you would tear down these buildings. Of course, they weren't going to last, but it was a great civic boost, and they got a lot of people coming in. Teddy Roosevelt came in, and, uh, you know, Mark Twain came by for a day. They also had an exhibit for African-American labor that Booker T. Washington was in charge of. Yeah, they they did. Uh, and they had a statute that was very controversial about African-Americans that had to be removed. But you mentioned Ben Tillman, and he has a role in this story because 
exhibits and world's fairs are expensive propositions. Mr. Wagner, who was the local merchant behind this, he was actually a wholesale grocer, I think. Yes. Uh, he was behind it. The city put up money it really didn't have. Uh, the state put up some money. But they were expecting federal funding, and Ben Tillman didn't lift his finger. No, he didn't do anything to help um, help Charleston, and the people in Charleston were very mad. But this was sort of an ongoing feud that had been, you know, had been around for years since he was governor, and um, he didn't help the exposition. And it was, you know, its ledger was in the red before they opened the doors. And, and although they had great crowds when it was all over, it still lost money. Yeah, it did. Nothing really came of it. Yeah. But then Tillman actually did Charleston a favor. He moved the Navy Yard from Beaufort to Charleston. There are comments by earlier historians and political scientists that he was desperate for votes and he was going to finally get on, try to get on the good side of Charleston by moving the Navy Yard. And that changed Charleston. Yeah, the, the Navy Yard came in. I think they struck the deal right before the expo and it opened a year or so after. And it really changed the Charleston economy, and it was up and down. I mean, it, it came in, it did well for the city. And then the first war, the Great War, came along, and uh, the economy was great for a while. Of course, afterwards, it all tanked. But that is the world that uh, Lloyd is wearing was growing up in. I mean, he was, he took the bar exam, you know, right around the opening week of the exposition, the turn of the century. and. So this was the the world he grew up in. All right. He he just read for the law, which was fairly common in those days instead of going to law school. I found it interesting that the man who was sort of his mentor in the law told him to get his nose out of books and go sit in court. He'd learn more observing lawyers in action than he would get out of books. Yeah, I thought that was interesting. He was uh, very interested in reading, but his, his mentor was just like, nah, just this is... He, he, he treated it as a trade, something you'll just learn going along. I think Waring did both. I think he was a great studier, and uh, he also had practical experience. So in his early 20s, he's got his law degree. He's not making a whole lot of money, uh, but he does have a steady income. He's still living with mama and daddy. Yes. See, that's, I think that's one of the things that the picture in your mind, and I had this, is as a judge, he was a relatively young man. He wasn't. He was 61 years old when he finally got on the federal bench. Yes. And he was not a politician in terms of going for public office, but he certainly was a backroom politician. Yes, he was. For more than a decade, Waring was involved with the Democratic Party locally and on the state level. But he really got into politics when Burnett Maybank asked him to join his campaign for mayor of Charleston, and um, he pretty much managed that and was tied for, for the next decade through the 30s, was tied to Burnett Maybank. You don't just drop in from thin air and become a federal judge. You show that, that Waring was very calculating in the moves he made in terms of stepping stones towards this position. So how about filling that in for our listeners? Well, early on, he um, he took a job as, as a U.S. commissioner, which was sort of a magistrate for the federal courts, and he was doing little stuff like that. And um, he did that for a while, and he dropped out of it. And the guy who took his place did the job for a couple of years and then got appointed assistant U.S. attorney for the state. And he thought, wait, I've missed out here. So he took the job again and eventually did get to be appointed assistant U.S. attorney, and this is in the early 19-teens. And uh, by that time, Francis Weston, who was the U.S. attorney for South Carolina, was getting on up there and wasn't really doing much. And so Waring had a pretty free hand to prosecute whatever he wanted to, and he helped make his name by taking on high-profile cases and um, staying in the news, and um, and Weston deferred to him. But it also um, it brought him into... Uh, the world of Cotton Ed Smith, our senator, who I think Weston was one of his campaign managers and good friends. Cotton Ed, from the time he got elected uh, until he was eventually defeated by Jimmy Burns, was 
quite a fixture in South Carolina politics. Very important because you're talking about junior federal officers. Well, it's the senators who have a say as to who fills those offices. Yeah, and I, th- I think that Waring was was very aware of that, and so he helped out. And actually, uh, I think he might have managed uh, Cotton Ed's Charleston campaign during one or two Senate races. Okay. Brian, we need to pause for a moment and let our listeners know that this is Walter Edgar's journal, and our guest is Brian Hicks, author of In Darkest South Carolina, Jay Wade is Swearing and the Secret Plan that Sparked a Civil Rights Movement. Since I just mentioned the title, where did that title come from? In Darkest South Carolina is, is, is a remark that Judge Waring made in 1950 um, when a group of people came to his house to present him with an award for his work in civil rights. There were several groups involved, and they had come from all over the state, including Majeska Simpkins from Columbia was one of the ringleaders of this thing, and they'd marched two miles across the Charleston Peninsula on this very cold November 1950 day. And uh, Waring was talking about uh, what he'd done in civil rights. And when he mentions in darkest South Carolina, I think it might have something to do with the fact that those people are standing there watching him, and he's surrounded by armed U.S. Marshals sent by the president to keep him safe. I thought that really summed up the era of what was going on. It certainly fits in with the way Waring began to feel or felt certainly at the end about his hometown and his home state. When you were doing your research for this, there was a taped oral history done of him back in the early 50s, which was pretty early for that kind of thing. Uh, did you have access to that transcript? Yes, I did. In, in fact, um, you had two Columbia university professors who went by to see him once a week uh, shortly after he moved to New York in 1952. And uh, he had had this nice apartment overlooking Central Park. And these two guys would come by every week and they would talk to him for an hour or so and record what he was saying. And this went on until uh, March of 1957. And the transcript is over 400 pages long. And um, that was like Christmas for me when I got the transcript. I think I read it in one sitting, and um, it actually informs a lot of this book because he delved deeply into his thoughts. And his papers, which are at Howard University in D.C., really only start a few years into his federal judgeship. There's nothing in those papers older than about 44 or 45. Well, one of the earliest documents you've got are the— the love letters that his first wife wrote to him. And that was a fairly recent discovery, wasn't it? Yes, that was found in someone else's papers and um, and donated to the South Carolina Historical Society. And actually someone alerted uh, Judge Richard Gurgle to that, and Judge Gurgle shared them with me um, when I was doing final edits on this book. That's how, that's how recently those letters were discovered. For their day, and we're talk- going back again to the early 20th century, they're pretty racy. That's what I thought. I thought that was the most uh, striking thing about those letters. Because the usual picture of the first Mrs. Waring, Anne, is that she was very shy, very prim and proper. She did all the right things that a proper Charleston lady should do. But she was married to a dynamo, and so you just she was always in the background. Yes, she was. She was... Um, she had been that way her whole life. She had sort of been quiet and shy, and um, she was really an interesting woman. I mean, she'd befriended the, the French actress Sarah Bernhardt and traveled to her home in France and took care of her in her later years. But back home, she was sort of a, a wallflower. The, the unkind gossip about her around Charleston was that she didn't even have a coming out party. Her father was from Savannah, bless his heart, Uh, (laughs) although her mother was from Charleston. But the fact that even in the depths of depression and financial difficulties, a young lady had to be properly presented. She had, you know, even if it were meager, it it was still done. But Ann Waring did not have that. 
No, and I think that uh, about the time it would have happened, her mother died, and there was a lot of turmoil in her family. And by that time, it was just her and a couple of older sisters. Well, one of the things that is interesting to me is that the house in which the Warings would live had actually been purchased by her sister and given to them as a wedding present. Yes, the house is, is almost a character in the book. I love the house, but yeah, the sisters bought the house and they fixed it up and they gave it to her and it was hers, which looks worse later on in the story when Judge ends up with the house and the divorce. Well, they're, li- they're living there on, on Meeting Street and then out of the blue, after more than 30 years of marriage, the judge one morning informs his wife he wants a divorce. Yeah, this is uh, three years into he'd, – he'd been a judge for three years, and uh, they had a grown daughter. They'd been married about 30 years, and he comes home and says, I don't love you anymore. I want a divorce. Well, divorce is not even legal in South Carolina at the time. And he tells her that he's having an affair and he's in love with another woman. And um, he says, but you're going to have to go live with my sister-in-law in Florida and establish residency so we can get this divorce. So it was just completely humiliating and and not a very nice thing to do. Um, poor poor Annie got uh, a, a really raw deal in this. Yeah, he got the house that her her, her family had bought. Yeah, I point out in the in the book that the judge actually offered. He said, "This is your house. You can have this." And she said, "No, you take it because I'm never going to live in Charleston again. I can't bear to." She was going to move to New York City and live near their daughter. Of course, a couple of years later, she moves back to Charleston and lives within sight of the house. And it just makes the judge look even worse that he's got another woman living in Annie's house. Well, 1941, he's in his 60s. He gets named judge. But very quickly, over the next couple of years, during the war, there's some rather famous cases that certainly fit into your subtitle of the Civil Rights Movement. And this is a different Waitis Waring from the Waring who used everything Charleston to get his his position, his name, uh, what have you, and then he kind of turns his his back on it. Yeah, this is um, this is not anything that anyone sees coming. I mean, you think about Waring as an adult. I mean, he's. Uh, He's a confidant of Cotton Ed Smith and Francis Weston. He's part of the Democratic Party power structure. His brother, at that point, is editor of the Charleston newspaper. His um, law partner is in the legislature, and his brother-in-law is the governor. And this is this man is connected. He is the power structure. But then when he goes on the bench, he just sort of ignores all that, and uh, it starts to show pretty early on. What is the first case where his decision kind of made people sit up and take notice? The first case that I focus on, and I think this was his first civil rights case, was a teacher pay disparity lawsuit. In those days, you know, they had white teachers at the white schools and black teachers at the black schools. And the NAACP recruited a teacher at Burke High in Charleston to um, file a lawsuit that black teachers were being discriminated against. They were being paid about 60% what white teachers made, given equal experience, which I point out in the book is probably not coincidentally three-fifths. And and folks, if you don't remember your American history, when slavery was legal, when the Constitution was written, the southern states could count enslaved persons as three-fifths of a person for population in order to have larger congressional districts. Yes. I just thought that was an interesting coincidence. But so this this case, Thurgood Marshall comes to represent this teacher in Waring's courtroom. And uh, here's a guy who was appointed to the bench by Cotton Ed Smith and uh, Burnett Baybank. So he didn't have much faith that he was going to get a fair hearing. And they walk into the courtroom and sit down. And uh, the first thing Waring says is he looks at the attorney for the school district and he said, when was the Alston case in Norfolk decided? And Thurgood Marshall stands up and says, Judge, I can tell you. And he goes, sit down, Mr. Marshall. And he turns back to the school district guy who flips through his papers furiously for a few minutes and then comes up and says, 1937. He goes, "Uh uh-huh. When was the Maryland case decided? 
And again, Thurgood Marshall stands up and says, Judge I, and he goes, sit down, Mr. Marshall. Now, by this time, there's a lot of murmuring in the courtroom, and they're saying, good Lord, he won't even let her lawyer speak. This is going to be horrible. And finally, the school district attorney answers the judge's second question, and Waring completely turns his back on the school table uh, and looks at Mr. Marshall and says, I'm sorry if it appeared I was rude to you, but I knew that you knew the answers to those questions because those were your cases. Now the question I have for you is, do you want me to make them equalize pay right away, or do you want to give them a few months to raise the money? And Thurgood Marshall later said it was the only case he ever tried with his mouth hanging open. <laughs> but it would not be the first time that Thurgood Marshall was in Wages Waring's courtroom. No, they became um, very good friends, in fact. Um, and some people would see Marshall in town and going into the judge's chambers and staying for you know a couple hours at a time. And the judge, mentor might be a strong word. But he was certainly helping him along, and they and he liked Thurgood Marshall, and was constantly giving him advice. And of course, that leads to the the crux of this book's plot, is that relationship with Marshall. Well, and the next case is African Americans, the Democratic Party, the right to vote at the primary. Yes, that was that was the real test. What few people knew Judge Waring from history had always assumed, well, you know, his part in the school lawsuit had something to do with it. No, the reason that people in South Carolina turned on the judge was because he opened the Democratic primary to black voters. And at that point in the mid-40s, the Supreme Court was striking down whites-only primaries in other states, and South Carolina was still clinging to the notion that they were a private club and could do what they wanted to. And he came in and said, no, you can't. You have to let them vote because this is their constitutional rights. It's open to everyone. And at that point, I like to point out that for people who think our, our politics in South Carolina are a, a bit one-sided today, I use the example of Bernie Maybank's 1938 gubernatorial race. In the general election, Maybank got like 49,000 votes. His Republican opponent got 283. And uh, that is a one-party state. <laughs> so by not allowing people to vote in the Democratic primary, they were basically denied their voice. And Waring told all of his friends in the Democratic Party that they could no longer do that and threatened to jail precinct chairmen or anyone who tried to disenfranchise voters. Yeah, and because we're leading up to the 1948 election. Yes. And before Olin D. Johnson went to the Senate as governor, he had called the legislature in session to basically repeal all of the state's laws that governed elections. So the Democratic Party said, well, we don't – the state doesn't run elections. It's, it's, a, it's a private club. This is after the Texas case where the Supreme, U.S. Supreme Court had overturned that. And it's interesting looking at the, the machinations and the, the wording that was going on to try to prove that, hey, we are a private club. The figures, the state's attorneys, we're not talking about the attorney general, we're talking about private lawyers. Dean Figg from the university, who was a Charlestonian, mm -hmm. um, Robert Figg. It took a while, but as you pointed, Waring threatened to put people he knew in jail if they did not open their voting rolls. Yeah, they resisted. His first, his first ruling was in 1947, and... Uh, he had decided he'd been inspired by a speech that President Truman gave to the NAACP around the time he was deciding the case. And he was trying, he, he knew he was going to make people mad no matter what he did. And he didn't know whether to be diplomatic or go for the throat. He, he chose the latter. And this line he put into his ruling opening the primary was that it's time for South Carolina to rejoin the Union. And that barb would haunt him for years because it just set off the entire power structure, including my newspaper. Well, uh, your newspaper, it was then the News and Courier had not merged. Well, actually, the Evening Post, both Charleston newspapers were very vocal. I mean, they, they denounced him. He was a traitor to his, his class, a traitor to white people. He had turned his back on everything he was supposed to represent. And 
of course, what the Democratic Party tried to do after he had his ruling is said, oh, we're going to have a loyalty oath. Yes, this was a brainstorm they had at one of their state conventions that uh, that you could sign up and you could vote, but you had to uh, sign a loyalty oath that you would, you know, among other things, you know, support the party's nominee in the November election. But it also slipped in some language that you would support segregation. And, of course, that was a no-go. It also had some um, religious language that really derailed it all. In fact, somebody with one of the churches said, this is going to cost you 5,000 votes in Charleston County alone. Yes. Roman Catholics and Jewish Democrats in Charleston were particularly upset about that. This is the beginning of where you talk about his going for the jugular. This seems to be the way he's going to operate from here on out. He not only doesn't mince words, he he tosses bombs. Yeah, he, he fights fire with fire, and as they resist the rule of law as he hands it down, he gets more hardened and becomes goes more the other way. Sounds sort of like politics today. The resistance he got to his ruling in Elmore, which opened the Democratic primary, led him to get more strident in his remarks, and he fought back with these guys. And his wife enters the fray now, his new wife. Yes, his, his new wife, uh, Elizabeth, who he married a week or so after he divorced Annie, she came along with him on these, on his, uh, she went and sat in his courtroom, and uh, she began to get as politically active as he was. She was sometimes the spokesperson who could say things that he couldn't say as a sitting judge. That all came to a head uh, shortly after this and after they had gone through the campaign in 1948 where he was the issue in a number of races across the state. Everybody was was running on a platform, Mendel Rivers, Strom Thurmond, uh, to impeach Wade Swearing. Yeah, that was uh, that was the um, the cause of the election. Everybody wanted um, to get rid of uh, Waring. But Brian, he was just getting started. Yeah, it was. He was just getting started. They thought that he had uh, rocked their world, and they couldn't believe they had been double-crossed by this this man who'd been one of them. I'm sure it was scary at the time. The judge did retreat a little bit after some of it got so bad, but the legislature voted to buy him and his wife uh, bus tickets out of town one way. Various congressmen, you know, threatened to impeach him, and then he started getting the hate mail they delivered by the sack. His phone rang with obscene phone calls so often he couldn't take or make calls. He had to get a second private line installed at his house. Um, it was really over the top, and Strom Thurmond was was uh, calling him out regularly on the campaign trail as you know being an example of one of the problems. Yeah, and of course Mendel Rivers, then the Charleston congressman, first district congressman. Was, was also out there. And the General Assembly also offered to reimburse the House of Representatives for impeachment costs if they would Im- yes. impeach Wade Swearing. Uh, but it went, it very quickly went beyond words. Yeah, he was, he was attacked. Um, they, they burned crosses in front of his house a couple of times. Uh, he was threatened. And eventually in October 1950, a car pulls out in front of their house and starts throwing rocks and bricks at at, at the house, busts their door, a couple of windows. Uh, the judge thought he heard gunfire, although there was never any proof of it. And uh, after that, uh, President Truman had to send U.S. Marshals to guard him around the clock. How did the local police, Charleston police, react to what was going on? The local police didn't like him any better than anybody else did. And no matter what happened to him, they said it was prank. It was it was vandals. It's just teenagers having fun. The clan was never involved. Is no, what they uh, that's that's a great scene in the book. There's a detective who who says this over and over again. It's just just a kid's prank. In I think March of 1950, somebody plants a three foot cross in his yard and sets it on fire, and it's engraved. the The wood is engraved K K K. And uh, the Charleston chief of detectives stands there and says, there's no evidence whatsoever of any Klan involvement in this. Yeah. Well, he and his wife were protected, but 
that caused even more consternation. Uh, how much was it costing to protect these people, which would have been the kindest way that they might have been referred to? That, that became a real issue, and he didn't like it. Judge Waring knew that he would get grief for this. He did not want the protection. Um, and, of course, he was right. It became a huge thing. Mendel Rivers came out and said, you know, it's cost us $1,200 to protect him for a month. He's the biggest extravagance on the federal payroll. Then the, um, the U.S. Marshals set up a no-parking zone around his house, which made everybody south of Broad mad. The judge by this time is his only social circle right now are African Americans in Charleston. And he spotted one night going to play cards at uh, Ruby Cornwell's house. Her and her husband lived up um, off King Street. And so they see all these federal marshals sitting around this black couple's house. And all that set off the newspaper again. How much are we paying for the judge's uh, social life? His canasta games. Yes. And so it was a great deal of uh, hand-wringing over that. Brian, we need to pause for a moment and let our listeners know that this is Walter Edgar's Journal, and our guest is Brian Hicks, author of In Darkest South Carolina, Jay Wade is Swearing, and the Secret Plan that Sparked a Civil Rights Movement. You just touched on this, but the Warings were completely ostracized by the Charleston establishment. That began after the divorce. Yeah, Waring was a persona non grata for getting a divorce. A lot of the oldest clubs in the city that he belonged to wanted nothing to do with him. They all took Annie's side in the divorce. Many of them wouldn't allow members who had divorces. The judge resigned from a few of them, he said, to save them the problem of of kicking him out. But um, Waring was pretty bitter about the way his new wife was treated. He expected his friends and family to accept Elizabeth as his new wife. And when they didn't, in fact, uh, everybody in town pretty much hated her. She was a twice divorced Yankee hussy, as they called her. And um, they started calling her the Witch of Meeting Street. It just drove him insane. He could not stand that they did not treat Elizabeth with respect. And so he pushed back. So that feud kind of went both ways. Yeah, that's one thing that comes quite clear. He's not a milk toast. I mean, he's anything but. That's when I said he was ta- he tossed bombs. And it got to the point, of course, we're getting ready to get into Briggs v. Elliott. Every time he spoke, and certainly by 1950, when Elizabeth speaks and she does become politically active, their remarks are all, would be considered toxic. I mean, they, it's almost like they go out of their way to tick people off. Yeah, they did. They were they were certainly not uh, trying to to be diplomatic. Brian, we we got to move along to the culmination of all of this, of which, of course, is Briggs v. Elliot. Well, by the by the late '40s, Judge Waring and Thurgood Marshall were were pretty cozy, good friends, uh, probably closer than a judge and an attorney appearing in his courtroom should have been. But um, a curious thing happens. Marshall is representing a group of parents out of Clarendon County asking for bus service for the black schools because the white schools all have buses and the black schools don't. And the courthouse observers noticed that Marshall brings this uh, case in and Waring just unceremoniously dismisses it and throws it out of his courtroom. And everybody thinks, what's going on here? I thought this was, you know, his best friend. Well, behind the scenes, Waring had said, your, your buses are small potatoes. This is a waste of time. It's easy enough for them to give you a broken down bus to shut you up. Think bigger. So Marshall comes back with another lawsuit asking for equal facilities because the schools like Scott's Branch, you know, wouldn't have indoor plumbing. They had two outhouses for 600 kids and they didn't have heat and things like that. And Waring threw that out as well. And Marshall was getting a little frustrated by this. He was trying to do right by the people in Clarendon County who had been lobbying hard for NAACP representation in a lawsuit. And this is when Waring says to Marshall, you've got to challenge the very notion of segregation. There is no separate but equal. Uh, Separate is per se inequality. And that is the line he used in his minority dissent 
when the case was finally brought to trial yes. was segregation is per se inequality. And that is a line that would be repeated in Brown versus Topeka in 1954 by the U.S. Supreme Court that ended segregation as the law of the land, which it had been since 1896 in the Plessy case. Yes. Waring had become obsessed with overturning Plessy. He believed it was the root of all evil. It gave the states cover to have these separate but equal you know, segregation policies. And, and the, the real crux of the book is that Marshall didn't want to file the lawsuit that Waring wanted him to because Marshall, who was a better attorney, knew that if he challenged the constitutionality of a state law, it wouldn't be heard in little old Judge Waring's courtroom. It would be heard by a panel of three judges, and he would lose. And Waring told him ahead of time, you're going to lose two to one. I'm going to vote for you. The other two will not. But because of some act of the judiciary in 1937, every decision handed down by a three-judge panel was automatically appealed directly to the Supreme Court. Waring set this up so that the Supreme Court, which had been trying to dodge the issue of segregation for a long time, he put it right in their laps, and they could not ignore it any longer. And um, that is basically what he used Briggs versus Elliott to do. So that, that is the plot. The plot begins earlier. The plotting begins actually in the early 1940s with Elmore v. Rice. That's the Democratic Party lawsuit, yes. Yeah. So the Supreme Court does make its ruling. The reaction, the blowback in the, in the White South is a story that's been often told. Waring is getting ready to become a man, not without a country, but certainly without a a hometown, he decides to retire from the bench because he's in his 70s now. Mm-hmm. And he and Elizabeth, from the, the comments that he made later, really did fear for their lives in Charleston. Do you think that's an exaggeration? I think they had some cause to fear for their lives. There were there were a number of you know shady things going on. Their house had been attacked. They were getting threats. Their friends were getting threats. But Elizabeth hated it in the South. She liked going to New York. They spent a lot of their time in New York or in California or some other place. Uh, they stayed out of town as much as they could. But after his descent in Briggs versus Elliott, Waring knew that his job was over. He had he had sent this case to the Supreme Court, and he was forcing them to rule. He had his ten years in. He didn't need this headache anymore, and he knew he would never get a better chance if this didn't work. He told somebody it'll be generations before we get another chance. So he retired in 1952 and left Charleston forever, save for one trip back. When Waring ended his legal career, he was considered a flaming liberal, certainly in his home state. But this is a man who later would describe his nanny in this way. She was an ex-slave and her husband was an ex-slave. Most of the Negroes I knew were ex-slaves, and you loved them, were good to them. We didn't give them any rights, but they, were, but they never asked for any rights, and I didn't question it. I was raised in the atmosphere that we ought to take care of these people. The paternalism which he, in which he was reared, he turned on its head by the time he stepped down from the court. Yeah, he did. And uh, to have this, this change of heart so late in life, it was when he— took to the bench. He sort of self-servingly said, well, I developed a passion for justice on the bench. That's that's a nice way of putting it, but I think that he really just saw that things were not right by the law, and he saw no reason to discriminate. In fact, he saw that it was wrong, illegal, unconstitutional to discriminate. And so he made these rulings, and as he got more pushback, it sent him further in the other direction. And of course, he went completely over the edge in the 1946 case with Sergeant Isaac Woodard. And you know that case. The, the Batesburg. The Batesburg case. A returning World War II veteran was blinded by a local law enforcement official when he got off the bus at Batesburg. Yes. Still uh, in his dress uniform, just returned from the Pacific. An act that made President Harry Truman decide to desegregate the armed forces. Yes. That case, you know, had a huge impact on Truman. It had... Uh, 
a huge impact on Waring because it was in his courtroom. In fact, they, the, the trial was in Columbia. Waring came up, and um, it, was, it, was, it was a sham of a trial. And the chief, um, the chief was never in any danger with this all-white jury, even though he'd taken Woodard off the bus, and for no good reason, they basically gouged out both of his eyes blinding him. And uh, he said, oh, it was an accident if I did that. The, the judge is watching this, and Elizabeth is sitting right there in the audience listening to it and just horrified, as is the judge. And so when it's over, he walks back into the chambers and um, says, I'm going for a walk. I'm going to walk around downtown Columbia for a little while. And the bailiff says, judge, it's not going to take them a minute to come back with a verdict. And he said, they're not going to do that and disrespect that man like that. They don't get to make their verdict until I say so. And I'm going to be gone for 20 minutes. And sure enough, they came back and they found the police chief not guilty. And that that set Waring and his wife, you know, on the path of activism. He went from just having a, a preference to actively fighting for civil rights. All right. He left Charleston in the early 1950s, disowned by his hometown. But in the 21st century, the federal courthouse is named for him, and there's a statue of him. Now, that's kind of a complete turnaround, and just briefly want to fill our listeners in on that. Yeah, that, that is a great story because when, um, when Judge Waring died— he came. They buried him at Magnolia Cemetery. He'd bought his plot a year before all this began, so he was sort of locked in. And um, almost no white people came to his funeral, just his daughter, a couple of friends. But um, the black residents of the city escorted him to the grave. And he was largely forgotten after that, never spoken of in Charleston. There's a great myth, one of the great revisionist history myths of Charleston is that, oh, no, 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 the city and the state, they weren't mad at the judge because of his civil rights decisions. They were upset because he divorced Annie and treated her so badly, and, and this was a horrible thing, and that's why the city hated him. And it's true that his friends and family were very disappointed in him and taken aback, and he made things worse, but as I point out in the book, they weren't burning crosses in his yard because he got a divorce. So anyway, he's forgotten, and in 2011, Gene Toll, Chief Justice, State Supreme Court at that time, and uh, U.S. District Judge Richard Gurgle, as fine a wearing a scholar as you can find, they held a colloquium on um, on Judge Waring for all these attorneys uh, for continuing education, and it's they brought it this huge book they put together with all of his court decisions in it related to civil rights. And the attorneys in Charleston and across the state are just blown away. They had no idea that Brown versus Board started in the Charleston courthouse. And so they raised money, a couple hundred thousand dollars, and had a statue of Waring put up in the garden behind the courthouse. And it is called the Fritz Hollings Courthouse at this time. It's right? the Hollings Judicial Center. Now, when they put up the statue, I wrote a story for the Post and Courier a little bit, you know, this book in an, in an abridged form is in, in a newspaper story about what happened. And then I got pulled into the story. After I ran the story, I got a call from Senator Hollins. He had known that I wanted to write this book for years, and, and Senator Hollins knew Judge Waring and thought very highly of him. And so when they put the statue up, he called and said, you got to write that book now. And I said, well, I'm, I'm going to. And he said, look, I, I want to change the name of the courthouse. And he had been floating this idea for some time, I don't know how long, a year or two at least. And the judges wouldn't hear anything of it because all the, the federal judges, two of one in Charleston, they all worship Judge Waring. He is their hero. They also love Senator Hollings, and they thought that taking his name off the courthouse would disrespect him or make him look bad. And so they had quietly ignored his request to look into changing the name of the courthouse. So the senator calls me and says, um, if you write about it, they can't ignore it anymore. He asked me to write a column about it. He said, 
and I'll never forget this. This was the greatest quote because Fritz says to me, I'll call Lindsay and you call Lindsay. And uh, I said, well, Senator, if you call Lindsay, why do I need to call him? <laughs> but um, it got around to the delegation and uh, Congressman Clyburn and uh, I guess Senator Graham to an extent got the name of the courthouse changed after writing one column about it. And um, the congressman told me this is the only time in American history he's ever found where someone requested their name be taken off a federal building in favor of somebody else's name. And uh, I thought it was this this great gesture to history. As, as Senator Holland said to me, he said, I just got the money for the building. He made history in it. Okay. And Brian, we have really run out of time, and I, re I regret that. Brian Hicks, author of In Darkest South Carolina, Jay Waitis Waring, and the Secret Plan that Sparked a Civil Rights Movement. Thanks so much for being with us today on The Journal. This is Walter Edgar, and I hope you enjoyed today's journal. Brian Hicks' latest book, In Darkest South Carolina, certainly sheds light on a 25-year period of South Carolina history that many people are not familiar with. One of the interesting facets to me is that in the 1940s and 1950s, Judge Waring was making waves locally by supporting the rights of African Americans in South Carolina. In 1950, Judge J. Waitis Waring was a pariah in his hometown. Today, the federal courthouse is named after him, and there's a statue in the garden behind it. What a sea change. This is Walter Edgar. Join me next week for more of The Journal. Walter Edgar's Journal is a production of South Carolina Public Radio. The producer and engineer is Alfred Turner. Production of this program is made possible in part by listener contributions to the ETB Endowment of South Carolina. The views and opinions expressed on Walter Edgar's Journal are not necessarily those of South Carolina Public Radio.